Lindsay Pugh. And I'm Joe Nesterook. Welcome to the Woman in Revolt podcast. Today we're talking about the 1976 film The Witch Who Came from the Sea, written by Robert Tom and directed by Matt Simber. Despite its badass poster, which you should go Google immediately, and status as a video nasty, I would say it is not an exploitation film. And my expectations for what this movie was going to be were totally diverted. I absolutely agree. Just from seeing the thumbnail of the poster before we watched it, starting to watch it, I was expecting something completely different. And I have to say what was delivered really exceeded my expectations. And I was delightfully surprised by it. Me too, because exploitation films don't typically, and I'm not an expert in this, so just off the cuff, when when I think of them, I think of a film that is just titillating to be titillating, not really particularly character-driven. The characters are more like archetypes or just used to move the plot along or for shock and horror. And this is very much a character-driven film. You get really invested in a lot of the characters, and definitely the protagonist, Molly, played by Millie Perkins. She was so incredible. She gave such a wonderful, nuanced performance. She knew exactly how to approach her character, in my opinion, how to make me care about her. And not only her, there, there were several actors in this film that were absolutely the perfect casting How they got such great actors on such a shoestring type of film, I do not know, but good for, well, I know about Molly and we'll talk about that, but good for them because I do believe that the actor's ability and what they brought to their characters is really what tipped the film for me. Totally. I think if this film had been made with less capable actors, it really just would not have held up. They really elevated the material and turned this into something psychological and interesting. And you really understood the pain and turmoil that Molly was going through. But you also understood how the other characters viewed her and what place they had in her life. And You also understood a lot about her based on how she treated other people. So very complex in in that way and just not what I expected at all based on that wild ass poster. Exactly. Exactly. Now, Lindsay, you were the one that came to me with this film and said, let's watch this. And we did basically just kind of on a whim. Just tell everyone how you came upon the film. Well, it was first, I guess put on my radar through Kayla Janice's book, House of Psychotic Women, which you're probably going to hear me mention a lot as we continue on with this podcast. It's just a very excellent book. It combines both her personal narrative and her history of watching horror films, along with more informational takes on the film. So it's sort of like a combination of memoir and film history and analysis. But she mentioned it, and I thought it was interesting, but had completely forgotten about it, didn't watch it. And then Joe and I were trying to actually watch more Zawolski films after we had seen Possession, and we were having trouble finding them. So I I think I Googled 
films that are similar to Possession, and this one came up on some listicle, and we just watched it on a whim. It was available on AMC Plus, if you have that, and I think it's available for rental on other streaming platforms. So it's it's one that I think is pretty easy to see. But yeah, we really just didn't know very much about it before going into this, and it was just one of those magical, like, wows, shocked that this random thing we chose was actually something that resonated with both of us. So true. At the end of it, after we were, I think as the movie went on, we it was both dawning on us that this is going to be different than we thought. And at the end, we were both like, wow, we're going to have to do a podcast on this one. <laughs> this is great. So, and I would also say, if you can get AMC+, Plus at least try a free trial. Try it because there have been several movies with my free trial. I also get the Shutter Channel. Perfect time of the year for that. You can really see some obscure movies that I have not been able to find in other places. So just an unpaid shout out for AMC+. Yeah, it has a lot of things. I can't. There were a few other things we recently watched on it, and now I'm blanking because everything is like melting together. Right. But it does have a lot of movies that you cannot find to rent other places. So it does. Kind of like HBO Max, which RIP, I know that's all going to be changing. Is it? It is, yeah. They're, it's a huge, it, they got bought by Discovery and they're oh, no. axing HBO Max and they're axing a lot of the original content that was through HBO Max and I haven't, th- I haven't kept up with it too much so I don't know how this has all progressed but yeah, things are, things are going to be different I am sure once that all switches over. All right, so if there's anything on HBO Max, watch it fast which I'm trying to finish, I think, a couple of things on there. So I will finish it. Yeah, and just hope that your favorites don't get canceled. And I guess that they either go over to HBO or that somebody else picks them up. I know that Summer Camp Island, which is technically, I think, for children, but I watch it, that got canceled. It used to be on Comedy Central, and then HBO Max got it, and they like swiftly canceled it. Oh immediately as this news came out so oh and my brilliant friend that's another one. <sighs> oh shit i don't know if that is i think that's hbo okay good i think but now i'm like fuck is it i i think oh, it is God. i think it should be safe i'm pretty sure that's hbo proper well anywho <laughs> back, back to this yes yeah, so it was very interesting we watched this we really enjoyed the movie we decided that we had to do the podcast on this one. And it also had the common theme of being considered a video nasty, which in all honesty, I mean, I know there's dis- there is disturbing content in this movie. There's no doubt about it. But in my opinion, it did not, well, video nasty is ridiculous to begin with, but it did not deserve to go into that category. No, like before I read about Video Nasties properly, I assumed that there was some kind of criteria for what made a film fall into that category. Like I assumed they had some kind of standard, you know, of X seconds of nudity or so many curse words. But it's just like an arbitrary bullshit system of people who decide if a film is I don't know what what criteria do they use, like going against the moral code or some dumb made up bullshit. But this film is like there is nudity and there are curse words. 
But as far as horror films go, I would not call this gory or explicit in its violence. As you were saying uh, some other time when we were talking about this, it's actually another one of those films where when violence is happening, we frequently see close-ups on the actors' faces and not the act taking place. So in that way, I think it's very tame as far as violence goes. I think so, too. I think that the implication of what's happening or the implied violence almost is more titillating than actually seeing what was happening in this film up close. And I will say, just as a trigger warning, there is abuse of a child by her father. So that will be brought up a little bit for anyone that may not want to go any further with that. So I understand that these are all very delicate subjects, but I believe that the film handled them very well. They came across, you didn't come across as this was something titillating or that it was being made fun of or sexualized in any way. It was actually just human trauma that makes people feel for other people. I had empathy for these people. So how these people that determined the video nasties, how they came up with this was such a terrible film, I do not know. Right. And in an article, which we will link, I believe in Film Comment by April Wolf, she talks a little bit about the production of this film. And in it, she mentions that when this came out, it failed to find an audience upon release and how that had a lot to do with the rating and the marketing. And she talks about how the director, Matt Simber, battled it out with the ratings board. And one thing he mentioned that I thought was interesting and disturbing is that a woman on the board or several women on the board were really resistant to the idea of childhood sexual abuse as depicted in the film. And one of them said, whatever gave you the idea that you could put this on film, which is just wild. I know that we thought as a collective society a lot differently about child sexual abuse or sexual abuse or harassment in general, but for someone to find that inappropriate to be on film is, to me, a little hard to wrap my head around. Sadly, I can probably wrap my head around that a little bit better just from my age group. Because when I was growing up, well, maybe it was changing when I was growing up, but children were meant to be seen and not heard. I know you've probably heard that phrase before. So basically, any type of abuse that went on, I think that it was almost something to be ashamed of and that you wouldn't want out in public and that people tried to cover it up or whatever. So I can imagine if there were people at that time that may have been of a certain age group, because we're talking about this film is from the 70s mid-70s, I could see where in their mind, they may have been taught as they were brought up that, well, this goes on in families, but we just don't talk about it. Nobody wants to air out their dirty laundry, which is crazy when you think, stop it, bring it out, let's help these kids. But it just had a completely different context, I think, a long time ago. Yeah, well, I mean, when I think about 
I don't want to say too much about this because I don't know. I don't think anyone in my family would listen to this podcast, but my dad comes from a family where child sexual abuse was had an impact. Let's just say that and keep it vague. But for any of those people to even come to terms with or talk about it, it took decades and they still really haven't done it. It's just like you say, a buried, shameful, secretive thing that people, I guess, compartmentalize and then try to ignore and pretend that it doesn't have effect on their lives. But I mean, so I can get at it from that place, but yeah, I don't know. It's just totally not how the environment was when I was raised and how these things were talked about, especially as I started to get older and more curious intellectually about these things and learning more about them from like a psychological perspective in college. This definitely wasn't the way that those things were handled or talked about. Exactly. It's definitely done a a complete turnaround since I was a child. Now, Luckily for myself, I I did not experience anything like that in my own personal life. So it's hard for me to say that I'm an expert on it. And as a child, you don't, if you're not experiencing it, I didn't know what was going on. I never heard of anyone talking about it or doing anything. I mean, there were some just instances I can remember maybe in elementary school with other girls that I knew that now when I look back on it, I'm thinking, wow, that did not seem appropriate. But at the time, I had no clue about what was going on. But I do believe that it, it has gotten better, thankfully, and that we've we've turned this conversation around. So I would like to think that if this film came out today, people would be a lot more open-minded and it wouldn't be given a video nasty and shelved because I think a, a lot more people should really see this film, should make an effort to see it. I think so too, because especially for the time. And I know whenever this film was trying to get made, there were some discussions. I cannot remember who said it, but I I think actually it was the writer, Robert Tom, brought the script to Matt Simber. And Matt Simber made a comment like, oh, this is going to be hard to get made because it's like a decade ahead of its time. And I would say it's even more ahead of its time. This is a film, the way it deals with these things feels pretty current. Not exactly, but if this came out today, I don't think you would look at it and say, wow, this is really dated. In some other ways, uh, there are some homophobic slurs used at one point. So in that instance, yes, it's dated. But in the way that it treats child sexual abuse, I don't really think see it as being dated in that way. I agree with you. There are some slurs and stuff that definitely would not be something that you would say today in in the film. There are a few things, but I would say overall the conversations and the way that things are presented, I think that it's held up very well. For this to have been made in 1976, someone definitely was ahead of their time. I believe, in making this film. So when you watch it, of course, I mean, people, the way that the film looks and the way that people dress and some of the things, it will feel dated, but just the overall tone of the film, how it's presented, 
the empathy that you will feel with the characters, I think that's what makes it timeless, is that you can empathize with these people. And even though this was in 1976, the emotions that they were having and the problems that they were having are still relevant today, and they were presented in a timeless way. I think so, too. I Now that I'm thinking about it a little bit more, I feel like the one area where it would potentially feel dated is the treatment of mental health issues and trauma. Mm-hmm. There would be different ways of dealing with those things, but I do believe there are still people who deal with their problems as Molly deals with them, which are through drinking and drugs and trying to ignore them and trying to compartmentalize them. I think those are universal human impulses that even though therapy is a lot more common, even though prescribed medications and diagnoses of mental health issues are more common, I still think that those are things that are hard for many people to deal with, especially as they relate to sexual assault or childhood incestuous abuse. These struggles are kind of things that people are going to be dealing with for a long time, even as mental health care gets better. Exactly. And especially for poor people, it's a lot easier to get your hands on some pills and drugs than to have insurance where you can afford to go get therapy or that you can even have the time from maybe the three jobs you're working to even think when you can even do therapy. So until this nation can get a grasp on providing adequate and equal health care for everyone, I think that this will be a timeless, unfortunately, it will be a timeless feeling to how people just abuse themselves in order to black out the pain and just to try to come through something. So unfortunately, that is still much a part of our society today. Yes. Self-medication is still a big way of dealing with mental health issues, as you say, especially for people who don't have adequate access to mental health care because this country is insanely fucked up. <laughs> when you consider just physical health care of your body and how you can have cancer treatments that cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars, when you're existing in that type of system, of course, mental health care is not even going to really be thought about or considered. So yeah, I mean, if you're if you're by chance a listener not in America, I'm sure you also probably know how fucked up it is here. But our healthcare system is at that <laughs> Tippy top, I would say. Yeah. It's fucked up. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're definitely fucked here. Well, Lindsay, we just give us, if you can, a, just a brief synopsis of the film. I mean, hopefully anyone listening may be familiar with this, or maybe we can just give them a synopsis of the film, and then later on they'll check it out. What is this wonderful film about? Yeah, so this film is about a woman named Molly played by Millie Perkins, who works at this really cool nautical-themed bar on the Santa Monica Pier called The Boathouse. And she is working there and then also pretty involved in her nephew's lives. Their names are Tad and Tripoli. And she has sort of a contentious relationship with their mother, who's her sister Kathy, played by Vanessa Brown. So she does have family support, but she has a contentious relationship with them. And through conversations she has, you find out that her father was a sea captain and is presumably dead, has gone missing at sea. And the way that Molly talks about him is very much like he is some kind of god figure. 
She's enamored with him. She will not take anyone denigrating his name. She defends him wholeheartedly. So very early on, you understand that there is something disturbing and not right with her relationship with her father. And as the film progresses, you start to see Molly losing the threads of reality a little bit. She starts murdering men that she sees on TV. And these are men who are in positions of power, traditionally masculine power, like football players who are very strong or actors who are very charismatic and beloved. And Molly starts enacting violence on them. And as she starts enacting violence on them, her mental health starts to deteriorate more and more. And you realize that she's dealing with the pain and the trauma of her previous sexual abuse at the hands of her dad and that she's doing it or she's processing it by taking it out on people who are not deserving of it, but who share similarities with her dad. So it's very much a movie, a serious movie about processing childhood trauma as an adult and what happens when you are unable to do that, how it eats you alive and just really fucks with your head. I wouldn't even really call this a horror movie so much. It's more, I would say it's more a a serious character-driven drama that has woven in threads of Greek mythology, Shakespearean tragedy. It's just a lot meatier and more serious than it looks to be on the surface. Yes, I think that's a perfect synopsis. I loved how the film opened. It opened with a wide angle of the sea, which instantly for me set the tone. And in a distance, you see at first you don't know who it is, but it's Molly and her two young nephews. She has two young nephews that she's very close to, and they pretty much idolize her kind of like the way she idolizes her father. She can do no wrong in their eyes. She spends a lot of time with them, and they are walking closer and closer to the camera. So I felt like the whole cinematography of the movie was very beautiful. I felt like as much as the actors, that helped set the tone also. The way that it was shot, the close-ups of the face, the seamless shooting, I just think that it all came together to give us, like you said, something that was very meaty. Something that didn't feel like a low-budget exploitation film, but felt like a serious art house cinema. (laughs) Yeah, and we should shout out, this is pretty cool, cinematographer Dean Kundi, who worked with big names like John Carpenter and Steven Spielberg, Robert Zemeckis, he did the cinematography for this film pretty early in his career. And again, like we just said, that this director, Matt Simber, is described as being very charismatic and just able to not only spot young talent, but to pull those people into his orbit. And I think he definitely was able to do that with a dean because I believe it was two years after this film, he was working on John Carpenter's Halloween, which is totally iconic in large part because of the cinematography. So shout out to Dean Kundi. 
Yeah, I found that so interesting. And that is true. I think that Matt Simber, I watched a couple of interviews with Matt Simber on YouTube, and he is really a character. I could see where you would just be caught up with this man because he knows how, you can just tell, he knows how to peddle some bullshit. He really (laughs) does. And I thought it was interesting with Matt, just a a thing on Matt Simber real quick, that he was married to Jane Mansfield. I mean, that's crazy. Yeah. I would instantly want to know him just because of that. But I think he did recognize the talent in Dean Coondy. Also, wasn't it because Dean Coondy had the special camera? He had this expensive equipment, and he's like, if you bring me on, you you can use my equipment, and this is something kind of new. Didn't we read that? I think he had a collection of expensive wide-angle lenses and, and like, the ability to set up for an anamorphic lens. Mm. And I wonder if – I read something about him where he got his start different ways in the film industry. Like, he started out – doing makeup for some Roger Corman movies. Then he was a gaffer. Like he did a whole bunch of things, but at some point he had a location truck with a camera and all the grip equipment and people would just hire him to do their low budget films because he had a whole bunch of things. So I wonder if he had them as part of that business or if he had them on loan from someone. But yeah, I think that's how he got involved because he talked up his abilities to use these wide-angle lenses and anamorphic lenses to really make the film look cool. And I would say he was totally honest. He wasn't bullshitting Matt Simber. He, he really was able to do those things. He did. Hey, sometimes you get in the band because, you know, you've got the van that can transport everything. So yeah. <laughs> maybe <laughs> whatever it that. takes. Yeah. That was it. Whatever it takes to get your foot in the door. And then As you had mentioned to me, Dean also was a cinematographer on The Thing, which is one of my favorite movies of all time, and then your favorite movie of all time, which was The Fog. So if for any reason that you're thinking, why should I check this movie out? That should be one of the reasons, is to see this young gentleman coming into his own for the cinematography in this film. Yes, And not my favorite movie of all time, but my favorite John Carpenter movie. Ah, there we go. The Fog. Yeah. The Fog. Yeah, so we should probably also, I I mean, gosh, I will say, if you see this movie and you're interested in it, definitely dive into all the people involved because they're all really, really interesting. Every single one of them. And we could do an entire podcast on the people involved in this movie, but... I do want to mention the writer Robert Tom, who at the time when he wrote the screenplay was married to Millie Perkins, the woman who plays Molly. He started writing the screenplay because he was in the hospital and they couldn't afford to pay his medical bills. So they were like, fuck, we like we need to do something for money. And one of the options, obviously, was writing something and and making a movie. So he wrote this while he was hooked up to IVs and shit. And probably not quite in his right mind, but he wrote it kind of using some of his own childhood, and I'm not sure what parts exactly, and then also part of Millie Perkins's childhood. I guess her dad was, was he a sea captain or a sailor? Hmm. He was involved somehow in that way. And I know that for Perkins, it was pretty 
traumatizing. Like she didn't want to do this film because she was a legit actress. And I say that just meaning like more highbrow. She had done The Diary of Anne Frank, which was Academy Award nominated. She had been involved in bigger productions and she, I think, considered this to be beneath her because of the nudity and the low budget nature. So she really didn't want to do it. But, you know, as we said, the American healthcare system real fucked up. You got to do what you got to do to pay your hospital bills. Exactly. When I saw her, her younger pictures, she instantly reminded me of a cross between Elizabeth Taylor and Audrey Hepburn. Just a beautiful, delicate person. And I think she brought just a subtle grace to a role that could have gone completely a different way with a different actress. So I do credit her very much with keeping this film on track to keep me interested in her and to make me feel for her. I thought that was important. I also found it very interesting. She was married previously to Dean Stockwell. And didn't Dean Stockwell work with her then-husband, Tom, on another film? And then later on, she ended up with Tom. Like, it's all, it all just seems very, <laughs> like, round robin with these people. Yeah. There were definitely a lot of connections. And I'm trying to think of which movie it was where they were all involved. And I can't remember. But she did do a lot of movies with Monty Hellman, who is the director who did that movie Cockfight, which I believe, did you watch that? I have not seen that. I think it's called Cockfight or Cockfighter. I get it wrong every fucking time. I think it's Cockfighter. Yes, Cockfighter. He did that in Tulane Blacktop. And the movies she was in with him were, I think, like early in Jack Nicholson's career, too. I can't remember if they met on one of those movies or not. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it does. There are a lot of pe these people are connected in sort of interesting ways where they either work together and then continued working together later or they became friends at some point it's just i think we've talked about this before how the more you start digging in the more you realize oh it actually is very crucial who you know and how you maintain contact with them in hollywood because that's how obviously you get so many opportunities and can further your career exactly Exactly. Yeah. I just remember reading that it just seemed like everyone here had connections that went way before this movie. And just it was like a round robin carousel of people interacting when this movie finally came together. Yeah, it really was. A lot of these people were just connected in, in many different ways. They were. Now, I tell you, the actor also... Even the actors that didn't have as big a role were excellent. I loved Lonnie Chapman. He played a character in this film called Long John. I must admit, when he first came on the screen, I instantly, my antenna went up and I was like, I'm not going to like this guy. He just seemed gruff. He was the owner of the Boathouse Bar, which was a cool fucking bar, by the way. I just... We found out later on that it was a real place and it had later been converted to a, what was it, a Bubba Gump shrimp bar or something yeah. like that, which makes me want to throw up. Sucks. But the bar was cool. He was the owner of the bar. He was also a lover 
of Molly in the film. And I instantly thought, this guy's going to be abusive. He's going to be horrible. But this was another great surprise. His character was very caring, very loving, very understanding, almost tired, beat down by life, was just trying to do the best he could. And I really liked him, ended up liking him and completely changing my opinion of him. And he's one of these actors that when you see him, you know him, but you just can't place it. Yeah. He's always been a great character actor in so many movies. He has worked with so many different people, but never really in like a top build role. It seems like he always gets, yeah, like you said, character actor or very small supporting role. But I know he was very involved in theater, and that was sort of his big thing. And I know there he worked with big names like Barbara Streisand and Dustin Hoffman, Robert Duvall. And it seemed like that was really what he loved doing. But he was in like so many films. If you Google him, you'll be like, oh, shit, that guy. He's that type of actor. Yeah. And then we have to talk about one other actor who we both loved. She was a a scene stealer, no doubt. Peggy Fury, who played Doris in the film. I absolutely loved Doris. She said some off-the-wall shit that I would not say, but she said a lot of shit that made me want her to be my spirit animal. (laughs) Peggy Fury, I mean, she just had an incredible career as well. Yeah, she was really interesting was one of those people, I think was married to the same person until he died, this actor named William Trailer, And together they formed an actor's studio called The Loft Studio. And she, you know, started out as like a Broadway actress and had a career in television, but she and her husband really became successful at acting coaching. She became a leading acting instructor and she instructed people like Michelle Pfeiffer, Angelica Houston, Lily Tomlin, Sean Penn. She was really, I don't know if she was at like Stella Adler level, but I would say, yes, as she was coaching many of the major actors in Hollywood at the time. And I just loved her role in the film from what we heard is she did not want to do this film. And I think that they just pursued and pursued and pursued her until she finally gave in and did it. And I'm so glad they did because Doris tells it like it is. She is just dry, but she also has a heart of gold. She has a dry wit. She's tough as nails, but she has a heart of gold. She cares about people. She, when the men start getting out of line in this film, she puts them right in their place. She just says the most inappropriate things. (laughs) Some of them I love. Some of them I'm aghast and I wish she hadn't said it. But she really was a cherry on top of the cake for me in this film. I really loved her character. Yeah, she's very, very funny. I guess her only downside as a character is her encouragement of Molly to use pills to numb her pain. Yes. But you, again, understand why that would be her impulse at the time. And based on what she knew about Molly, which was not very much, it's an understandable impulse. So yeah, Doris was not perfect, but Peggy Fleury's performance is one of my recent favorites that I've seen. Yes, we instantly had to do a deep dive on her. And I was so glad that we 
we got to know her. So once again, just talking about these different characters, it was the depth of the characters, even when they may not have had that much on-screen time, just the depth that was written in for them, the dialogue between them. It just all, it came together and really added a lot of nuance to the film and made it very enjoyable for me to watch it. I never thought during the whole watching of this movie, like, oh, this is horrible. When's this going to be over? Like I was, the minute that it started, I was in it and it just seemed like it ended fast when it was over. Yeah, I agree. I think that you can really tell, and this is going to sound a little elitist, but Robert Tom went to Yale where he studied poetry and playwriting. And I think that you can tell that he has a more formal education when it comes to writing because he does infuse, like we said, a lot of different literary tropes, a lot of mythology. I think he really understands how to build a character-driven story. And it's you know big reason why this movie is good. As we said, every aspect almost has someone involved who is just elevated above what you would think of if you did a quick glance of this movie on Wikipedia or something. Exactly. And I know you mentioned that this reminded you kind of of something Shakespearean or something about Greek mythology. What are some of the things in the film that you noticed that made you come to that conclusion? Well, there were a couple things that other people had mentioned in their reviews. So I know that April Wolf in her review mentioned how Molly is sort of like a Lady Macbeth figure. And the thing that I thought of is in Macbeth, there is that sleepwalking scene that is famous. And the way that Molly's murder scenes are shot reminded me of that, especially the first one where Molly is over at her sister Kathy's with Tad and Tripoli and they're watching football and this commercial comes on for razors and the man in the commercial starts talking directly to her and then she runs over and starts drinking and then you're in this other place where Molly is with one of the men from the commercial and another man that you saw earlier on the beach and she kind of sounds like she's underwater and you're not sure if it's a dream is it a premonition what is happening here you're not really sure what it is but you're watching this whole thing play out and it ends very violently where she ties these two men to the bed and then cuts off their dicks or mutilates their dicks with a straight razor the whole way that that's shot where you think what is happening and is it a dream or is it not and it's very violent and then molly later can't really reconcile it either like it doesn't really seem like she understands if that happened or if it didn't and that really reminded me of that that scene in macbeth I could see that when the film first opens up and she's on the beach, there is a brief scene where she sees some muscle men working out on the beach, doing the rings, lifting weights, and she starts having these violent fantasies about them. It's not that long of a scene, and I think that scene clearly 
as far as I know, that was strictly her imagination. She saw them. She liked what she saw. She equated wanting to be with them maybe sexually and instantly it ended in violence for her because of her past trauma. Then we, like you said, we went on to this scene where once again, she looks at the TV, the guys in the TV start speaking to her, the guys start speaking to her. Then all of a sudden she's with the football players. And I have to say for that first scene, I thought she was hallucinating again or was dreaming it. And it did like everything slowed down. It got wispy looking. It was weird. It was like a dream scene from a Freddy Krueger movie where you could tell when they went to a dream sequence, it just got all misty. But then we find out the next day in reality that these men were killed. And at that point, I was like, oh, shit, she's like doing a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, where she's going out and killing these people and not remembering. That's how I first, but the the very first killing, I thought it was just a dream. Yeah, it really seemed that way. And I thought, especially on my second watch, how smart it was where there's some manipulation of the vocals so it sounds like they're underwater or it sounds like if you were trying to talk to somebody underwater that's how it would sound right yeah yeah i didn't think about that but yeah exactly like it just slowed down and yeah not quite a demonic voice but you know it, it does it gets very slow and distorted yeah and another thing that i mentioned or that I realized when I rewatched this was how frequently the C is used as a euphemism for Molly's sexual abuse. Like she says that she says something like, like her dad said that they would go get lost at sea together or that they were lost at sea together. And that's what he said when he was talking about the abuse that he inflicted upon her. And so I thought that that was really interesting, too, that vocally or audibly, they were putting Molly in the sea in those scenes where she enacts violence against these men that she's met and seduced and now murdered. So it's it's kind of like an interesting Mm -hmm. way of tying together the generational trauma of having had that abuse inflicted upon her and how it's now impacting her as an abuser as a killer in her adult life so I thought that I was like wow that's really clever I I don't think I really picked up on that too much the first time until I thought about it more yes the C is so important here it's almost like the C is controlling this film the C is referenced all over the place it's the opening scene the boat house where she works is right on the C her flashback she has some horrific flashbacks where You don't really see it clearly. It's almost like the negative of a film, but there's men's bodies and body parts laying, and it looks like it's on a raft on the sea. So the sea, it it is, it's, it's truly a metaphor for, I just think, the abuse that she's went through, and it almost like it's, it's holding her captive. Like she, she never found a way to come out of the abuse or the scarring was so great when she was young. And she didn't have the tools or the resources or the help to overcome what had happened to her. And it was almost like she was drowning, really. Yeah. And then the film ends with her, again, it's sort of shot like it's 
a dream sequence and it's also cut in with shots of her in the film's reality, like continuity wise. But it's her on a raft and she's fully dressed and she's just floating out at sea. And when she gets further into the distance, it's a freeze frame and you just see this shot of her in the distance on this raft as the credits roll. So it's her returning back to the sea at the end. And yeah, I think you could read that as her overdosing and killing herself or her being trapped in this place where she can't get out. But yeah, like you say, it's the sea, the sea holding her captive. Exactly. I'm just curious. I mean, why do you think she was in denial about her father? Why could, why was she able in it, I guess in an indirect way to take out this violence on unsuspecting men that she really didn't know, but she couldn't direct all of this anger at her father. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a realistic thing that happens when you suffer abuse at the hands of one of your caregivers, because your parents are supposed to love you, and they're supposed to take care of you, and they're supposed to protect you, and your entire lot in life, your entire mental well-being and physical well-being is dependent on them until you're old enough for it to not be the case. So I think that when something happens, and I'm not a child psychologist, so you know I could be getting some of this shit wrong, but I think that when that happens, it just totally shatters your entire world as it's meant to be. And I think it is something where you can't process it, especially if you don't have other people in your life that you could trust, that you could tell about what's happening. Or even, we don't know, maybe she did try to tell someone and maybe they gaslit her. Maybe they tried to convince her that it wasn't happening or maybe they didn't believe her. As we said, this was a time where childhood sexual abuse was not really freely talked about. So I think it was just her coping mechanism, like her childhood coping mechanism of creating a fantasy for yourself, creating some place where you can escape to, even if it's just a place in your head or if it's through the television, just giving yourself some kind of outlet to remove yourself from the situation, if not physically, mentally. And I think then when you learn that as a kid, if you're not doing active work to try to unravel that shit as an adult, you're going to be stuck in the same mentality where that is just how you cope with really awful things. Yeah, I would have to agree. I found it very interesting that her sister in the film was portrayed. She, Her sister had two boys. One of them's name was Tripoli, which I found interesting. I had looked that up and found out that it also has a Greek relationship. It means three cities and that Tripoli, Lebanon is known as the mermaid of the Mediterranean. So I think that they named him for a certain way. But anyway, her sister had these two boys, but it seemed like Molly was the one that really had the connection with the boys. And it also seemed like Molly was the more outwardly beautiful of the two. They appear, her sister appears as someone that's kind of frumpy. And I remember her sister telling her, and her sister had no illusion about their father. She knew up front what had gone on. But from things that she said, it seemed like the father's abuse to her sister was not sexual. It was more of like, she said something like, he kicked me in the stomach. It still hurts where he kicked me that time. And she said, 
she would tell Molly, I don't know why you think he was so great, especially, you know, he was, he hated or he treated everyone terrible, especially you. Like maybe the sexual abuse was reserved for Molly. That was just something that I found interesting that even with her sister being the one trying to tell her, no, this is what happened. You've got it wrong. How she just denied it over and over and over. Yeah, I think that's why she resented her sister so much, because at this point in her life, she had been creating this illusion for herself or building up this mythical figure of her father, who was this strong, tough, but lovable sea captain. And she was not ready or mentally capable of seeing it as anything other than what she thought it was or what she told herself it was. And I don't think, again, like we talk about more sophisticated understandings of mental health, and I would like to think that maybe Kathy today would be able to recognize what is going on with her sister and that it is a coping mechanism and it's not just a hurtful thing that she's doing. But I think it was just all too complicated. And Kathy also was really not a super well-fleshed-out character. Right. Like, not that that, again, I don't want to say that's a criticism of the film, but I could see a different version of the film where you get a little bit more from Kathy that helps shed light on Molly's abuse, Molly's childhood, where they went different and why. Like, why did they diverge? Because they definitely think about their dad in very different ways. And I do wonder what caused that. As you say, it could just be that the abuse suffered by Kathy was not sexual. So maybe it wasn't wrapped up in these more complex emotions of love and care, which seemed to be how her dad manipulated her. It's more complex, but I think that maybe could have been, we could have seen a little bit more to help us understand that better. I think that the sisters loved each other. I I got that feeling from them. Kathy was trying to As the detective, there were two detectives in the film, and as they were honing in that it was Molly who committed the murders, they came to question Kathy, her sister, and her sister was trying to cover for her. She tried to warn Molly. She was telling her to run, to get out. I just feel like her sister was more enabling her to stay in this horrible mental state rather than trying to find a way to truly help her. And once again, a product of the times. Back then, a working mother with two kids, she's just trying to stay afloat and she can barely take care of herself and keep herself going, much less her sister who she believes has committed these murders I just think that she was to a point where it was just beyond her. She had gone as far as she could to help her. But I think that she did care for her. But I, I, like you, I would have liked to have seen Kathy maybe be fleshed out a little more, maybe a little bit more involved in the film since her and Molly has this shared history of abuse in the family. Yeah, and I thought it was interesting, too, like you mentioned, her relationship with her nephews. It did seem to me like, They appealed to her because she saw young, impressionable people who she could convince of her narrative. 
the narrative about her dad, their grandpa being this great man. It's like she saw this opportunity to tell that story, that version of reality that she had created for herself and to make these other people see it. It's almost like she was trying to bring them into her web so that she could have people that she could talk to her dad about that wouldn't give her the response that her sister gave her, which is basically, our dad is a drunk, our dad fucking sucked. With these young people, she can get away with saying this really grandiose stuff, and she doesn't receive any pushback. And you even see how that affects Kathy's relationship with her sons. And actually, I think it is Tripoli. So it's interesting that it's the one that has the name that ties into Greek mythology, because I think he is the one that gets slapped toward the end of the film because he defends Molly and basically says that his mom is a liar and he doesn't believe what she says about their grandfather or even what she says about Molly. So it's you kind of see her influence in the way that it's impacted another generation, even though they're not her kids, they're kids that she has influence over. I thought that was another little kind of horrific element to this that I didn't maybe really think about that much the first time. Exactly. They, the children were, it almost felt like Molly was a child herself in a lot of ways. Like there was a certain part of her emotional side that had never matured, probably stunted from her father's abuse. And her father, I don't know, I'll go ahead and mention this. The way that her father died is he was sexually abusing her. He was in the act of raping her when he had a heart attack and died right there in the bed with her. So I feel like maybe there was a part of Molly that what she just was frozen in that moment as that, I don't know, 11-year-old, and she could just relate to the boys. It almost seemed like she was a child along with them, just talking about different fantasies. And she worked at a bar, but I remember one of the kids saying she works at the Center for Information. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, it's almost like that they were making up stories with each other and had their own little little stories. So that was that was a very interesting thing. I found it very disconcerting at the end of the movie Molly was taking these pills because she finally I believe realized that she was actually committing the murders and that they were not part of her fantasies and she wanted to die because they were closing in on her rather than go to jail and everyone was going to help her including Long John and Doris And the two kids showed up trying to find her, and they were actually giving her the pills. I just found that very disconcerting and just a little bit like, hmm, this this bugs me. But I felt like there had to be something there. There had to be some type of metaphor there maybe that I was just missing. But one thing that she said as she was going out on her pill haze She said to them something to the effect of, if you haven't made it by the time you're 18, you're not going to make it at all in life unless you're lucky like me. I just thought that that was an odd thing to say right when she was drifting off into into her death from these pills. Yeah, she also said, she mentioned Grandma Moses. And I was thinking, like, the painter? 
<laughs> is that who she's talking about? Because I know Grandma Moses started painting when she was in like her 70s or something. So I'm like, okay, yeah. that would make sense with what she's saying. But why? why is she bringing this up? I don't know if that's her like creating a mythology for herself mm. that her nephews will then hold up after she dies. You know, that's kind of how I saw it. Like maybe it's her w- trying to cement her narrative to them. So that after she dies, they can say, oh, my Aunt Molly, she really made it. She worked at the center of industry and she did all of these great things. I didn't know if if that's what that was, but you're right. It was really disturbing to watch the kids give her the pills and the water. And then she at one point kind of collapses and rests her head on one of their knees. And it did almost remind me of when her dad collapsed onto her and died. So it's like she's imparting the same type of trauma and the same impulse at mythology that she suffered from as a child. She's imparting it onto her nephews. Right. I mean, so many times I do believe that children that were abused, they grow up thinking, I'm not going to do this, but that's it's so much in their psyche that they do become abusers. It has happened. So maybe that's that's part of it. She was continuing on the trauma unwillingly. I mean, we are talking about a woman that was going around killing people in a fantasy haze. So she was not in the best place emotionally or mentally on how to deal with young people. But it does make you think, what were they left with? Well, how are they going to grow up? What's going to be their <laughs> their memories of all this? That That was very disconcerting for me a part of the film, but it's moments like that sometimes that I think stay with you and you ponder them. And that just adds another timeless element to me, to the movie of, it just wasn't something that was pat and wrapped up in, in a certain way and tied up in a bow. There were some strange occurrences that happened that just kind of left you wondering hmm, and, and make you think about things. Yeah. I really appreciated how vague this movie left a lot of things. And speaking of that, I really want us to talk about Daphne because (laughs) you mentioned to me via text that you had an interesting theory about her. And just in case you don't remember people who are listening, um, Daphne is this person who is mentioned, but you never see her. She's someone who works at the same bar, the boathouse, with Doris and Molly and Long John. And she's mentioned sort of in the context of having issues with cramps or with menopause. And she's always talked about in terms like that. And she's also the person who gets Molly a hookup with pills. She has some doctor who will just write her pill prescriptions. And that's how Molly starts taking pills. So, yeah, Joe, tell me your what's your Daphne theory? All right. We're going deep. Everyone gird your loins because I'm going down a rabbit hole that will not make sense. But here we go. (laughs) I started thinking about it and I'm like, okay, the obvious thing is the Daphne character is something for comic relief. That would be the obvious look. She's talked about people kind of make fun about her, about not showing up for work. She's never there, but she's talked about blah, 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 blah. Well, my theory is, in a theoretical sense, that Daphne 
is the flip side of Doris. And I'll tell you why. Just hang on. Because Doris is always the one that says she talks with Daphne. Doris is the one that brings up Daphne, talks about Daphne, takes pills, talks about Daphne having the headache, is telling everyone to give Daphne a break, don't come down on her so hard. Doris is the one that gets with Daphne to get to Daphne's doctor to get the pills to help Molly. Doris, once again, is riding in the car with Molly when they're going to see this doctor to get the pills. She facilitates all of that. So in my mind, it's almost like the Daphne character, the way that Molly almost had dual personalities. There was the young, sweet Molly that worked in the bar and that was great to her nephews. And then there was the murderous Molly that didn't realize what she was doing and she was killing men. I almost felt like maybe Doris, that Daphne was somehow Doris's alter ego. Because Doris says at one point about Daphne, when they're riding in the car and she's talking to Molly, she's like, if she would just get her shit together, she could come back to work. If she could just get herself together. And Doris is a funny character in this movie, but she's also, I think, a very tragic character. She seems like she's by herself. I don't know. Maybe she's got other friends, but we really don't know that much about her. She's feisty, but there seems an element of sadness about her. So I just wonder if somehow she was tied in to be really the Daphne character, like the flip side of Doris's personality, someone that couldn't get it together, someone that relies on pit because she takes pills. She drinks a lot, just like Daphne does. So that was my theory that somehow Daphne and Doris are tied together. I like that. I could see that being the case. And I think the only other person who ever mentions Daphne is Long John. Mm -hmm. And as we know, Long John is sort of this, I think you described him as being a little bit beaten down by life. And so I could see him having these people in his orbit who are like Molly, who is clearly suffering from mental health issues. And Doris, who potentially is also suffering from mental health issues. Like I could I could see Doris using Daphne to him and him not thinking that that is something entirely bizarre. He just seems like the kind of person who would really accept you for who you are and what you're throwing out. Mm -hmm. So maybe or maybe <laughs> Doris is even the type who has a whole other alter ego as Daphne and just comes into the bar that way when she's really fucked up. It could also be. <laughs> I could I could see her doing that. That could be it. And Doris also said when Molly was talking about her boyfriend that did the shaving commercials, or not her boyfriend, but a man that she was able to meet at a party. She had seen him on TV doing the shaving commercials. And she was talking to Doris, and Doris goes, did you ball him? And she's like, yes. And she said, but he's not calling me back, and I could just kill him. And Doris says, we'll do it with the razor. That would, you know, make a lot of sales or make the news or something. Yeah. She said that to that effect. Like, Doris almost told her, like, go kill. And, of course, we know Doris was kidding. That was just Doris's. But it's almost like, I don't know. I just somehow felt like Daphne was 
was the unseen alter ego, maybe of not even just Doris, but of everybody that we did, all of our deep-seated things that we fear or that we think about, but but we would never tell other people, and we don't think that we are we could consciously do it, like murder, rape, things that you think about that you think to yourself, I could never do that. But then it happens. And I think those unspoken dark traits of people's personalities could be that shadow self like Daphne. And now I'm really, really stretching. But there you go. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> no, I, I like that read. And I might have mentioned this on the last podcast. I had also watched Twin Peaks Firewalk with me recently and have been rewatching the original Twin Peaks series, and it's maybe Daphne is sort of like the red room in Twin Peaks. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm just that's where my head's at. But I, I like that reading. I think that's interesting. I don't know. It's just fun to play around with because I do find it very interesting that they brought this character in and she's mentioned throughout the movie. And you think at any moment when they pop to a scene of the boathouse, she's going to be there. And she never is. <laughs> Yeah, I kept expecting her to show up. She's mentioned enough. Like, I have the screenplay up right now, and I, she's mentioned 10 times by name. Right. You don't do right. that in your screenplay unless you have some kind of reason. And like Joe said, I think she's not that much of a comic relief. Really, I think Doris is the comic relief to me more right. than anything. So I do I do right. think that there's something deeper going on there, and I'm... I wonder if Robert Tom ever talked about this somewhere. I wonder if anyone ever asked him about it. I, I tried to find something, but I never could. So I just started thinking about it this morning, like, what in the hell is that with Daphne? I just haven't heard. A lot of people are just like, oh, yeah, Daphne's this waitress and she never shows up. And it's just kind of funny and blah, blah, blah. But I always felt like there was something else there especially with what you said, how he tied in so much mythology. There's definitely a reason why Daphne's there. And that'd be a good thing to put out to all of our listeners. What do you think? What do you think about Daphne? Am I just off a deep end? Do you like it? Do you not? Who who, who is Daphne and why is she there? Well, there's also (laughs) Daphne in Greek mythology. I I Googled this. (laughs) I don't know this, but... um, And again, like I, I definitely had... Did you have Greek mythology in like middle school or high school? Oh, Lord. Honey, I was from Alabama. No, that was of Satan. (laughs) It wasn't in the Bible. Oh, oh my gosh. I know. What am I? What am I thinking? Well, we had, I think in seventh grade, we had like an English unit or something that was on Greek mythology, but I don't remember a lot from it. But I'm just looking at this and it's like, Daphne was a Greek dryad or tree spirit and daughter of Peneus, the river god. According to mythology, Apollo, the god of hunting, music, and poetry, offended Eros, the god of love, by mocking his archery skills. Eros retaliated by shooting two arrows, one hit Apollo and filled him with insatiable lust for Daphne. The other hit Daphne and filled her with abhorrence for all things romantic. Apollo pursued Daphne, and when she was tired of running, she called for help to her father, who turned her into a laurel tree. Apollo adorned himself with laurel leaves and called it his special symbol, 
which explains why the laurel tree is associated with the god Apollo in Greek myth. Interesting. I don't know if that adds anything to your read. The thing that grabbed me was tree spirit, and I don't know why, other than I do love trees. But that is interesting. That is interesting. Yeah, and like the fact that she was turned into an inanimate object. Well, I mean, I know trees are living, but they're not humans. Right. Right. In order to be protected from a man. That's sort that's interesting. It's almost like the man that was pursuing her was her worst nightmare because she did not want it just the way that Molly was pursued by her father when she did not want that type of attention from him. Definitely, I see a correlation there. Yeah, there's there's definitely something going on with the Daphne. And I think that that is probably a good way of tying it in with the Greek mythology. I think that it definitely is because I don't think Daphne was just something that is put in there just for the heck of it. I think she definitely had an important role in the film and very interesting, a very interesting role in the film where she never... You never heard her. She never made a a screen presence. Yeah, that makes me think, too. One other thing I wanted to ask you about. So I had mentioned before we started recording this, I'm trying to work on an essay about hysterical women in film. And I'm thinking a lot about hysterical women as written and directed by men. And so this is a movie where you have a figure who is sort of hysterical. I don't know how I would refer to her exactly, but she's going through something deeply traumatic and responding to it in ways that don't make logical sense. Are there any points where you feel like this is a man's understanding of a woman's issue? Do you feel there are any limitations to the portrayal as a result of being written and directed by men? Yes. I mean, I think that that goes hands down without saying, just as I do not believe that I can 100% convey a man's experience about something, not having grown up as identifying as a male, I, I just have to believe that, yes, there has to be some type of missing component, no matter how empathetic or talented a male writer is. I just don't think that they can touch the depths of what she was going through in the film. I think that this film, especially for being 1976, I feel like Robert Tom did an excellent job in bringing forth her trauma, but I don't feel like he expressed it in the way that a female writer or director would have done. Yeah, I think... And again, I'm I'm early. That's the way I feel. Yeah, no, no, I, I know what you're saying. I, I think, too, I haven't gone deep enough into this to really have cohesive ideas yet. But it really does seem like when men portray women who have suffered sexual abuse, especially if it's childhood sexual abuse, like it is in the case of the witch who came from the sea, in the case of Twin Peaks Firewalk with me. It's always linked with that character's sexuality as an adult. Mm. And I think that there's there's truth to that from a psychological perspective. But 
for the frequency of which that is portrayed, it almost seems like it's a given that if you're abused as a child, if you're sexually abused as a female child, that you're going to have all of these really violent impulses in your own sex life or that you're going to be sexually perverted or that that's that's always where the interest seems to lie from a male perspective. Mm-hmm. And as I said, I think there's some truth to it, but it's all it also kind of disturbs me because mm-hmm. there's something about it that is also kind of like more titillating and maybe even it's just more that it's like a man trying to create or trying to have sexual autonomy over a woman. There's some layer to it that I find disturbing and I can't really put my finger on exactly what it is. I think that, first of all, when I hear hysterical women, I instantly just get like, and I know that the term hysterical women doesn't necessarily have to mean anything wrong. It's just that all of our lives, men tell us anytime that we voice any type of opposition, no matter what tone is, well, don't get hysterical. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm not hysterical. I mean, that, that just automatically makes me think like, what's going on? But I just feel like, in, and I, I, I agree with what you're saying. It, it's almost like her sexual ab- abuse has to be turned into some type of revenge where she has to go and cut off men's dicks. And I understand that that's the shock value. There is some shock value in this film of why it's put in there. But I just feel like with, with if it had been told from a woman's point of view that we would have had a lot more nuance than she's having these fantasies and she doesn't remember. I could just see this being a lot more subdued without the overt violence and it still being a very thoughtful and disturbing film without having her do something like a revenge, a subconscious revenge for her abuse. Because I'm sure a majority of women that are abused are not out cutting off men's body parts. I mean, that that abuse and that hurt stays within them, which is just as horrific <laughs> to me that they have to carry that abuse around and have no outlet for it whatsoever. Not that I'm condoning going out and killing people for that. So... I don't know that that's it's just I don't know that's just something I think you could just debate round and round and round I I do like the movie and I give him credit for what he did but I think you're right I mean there could be some things in there that are just kind of done over and over and over about women that have been traumatized through rape or through violence and how men think they should react instead of how they really do react Yeah. And like, that's not to say that women can't or shouldn't create movies like this that are genre movies that just show revenge. Like there's the movie Revenge that came out in maybe 2018 or something that is directed by Coralie Fargiat. I don't know if that's how you say her name, but that's a very pretty straightforward but updated rape revenge story. And I think that that's totally valid. And sometimes we need that. Sometimes it's cathartic to see a woman just enacting violence and not giving a fuck and not having an emotional response to it. But in this case, 
it's a woman who's enacting violence, but then who has a very complicated emotional response to it. It's right. not like she's like, yay, hooray, I killed those people and I'm fucking happy I did it because they deserved it. It's weighing on her and it's causing like a psychological fracturing. Mm-hmm. And I think that when you get into the more complex portrayals of it, it's, again, I think it's a good movie and I don't want to shit all over it or anything, but I do think it's a, it's harder for men to really understand the depth of what that would do to you. And I'm not saying that this movie is limited. I'm just saying that there's something about it that... I'm not quite articulating well, but I just, there's something that gives me pause. So if you, if you're listening to this and you're like, I know Mm -hmm. what it is, (laughs) or it's this for me, that would be helpful to hear. Uh, I'm just curious how other people, especially how other women feel about this type of thing. When you see something that is happening to a woman, but created by a man, where do you, where do you find the limitations? And if not in this movie, are there other movies where you feel like Hmm. there's something that is just not quite right about this and I can't put my finger on it. It's not ruining the movie for me. I still think it's a good movie, but there's another read of it that is a little more critical that that bothers me. So, yeah, if, if you can think of anything, let us know. We'd be so curious to hear. Absolutely. Well, I think, did we talk about everything we wanted to talk about i think we did i would just have to say amc plus or Lindsay. you said that you could rent this maybe on prime if so please if you have not seen this please watch it and then let us know what you think yeah let us know what you think and also let us know if there are any other video nasties that surprised you or that did something that you didn't expect we would love to maybe do a couple more of those. And I think definitely we want to do more films that center on this hysterical, hysterical woman trope because they are interesting to talk about. And especially when they're directed by men, I'm just, I'm really curious to dig into that a little bit more. Yes. Let's peel, let's peel back those layers and see what yes. what was going on. And I would love to do that over a beer at the old boathouse if they hadn't torn it down. Uh, <laughs> or, or changed it. Changed it. I know. R.I.P. Boathouse. R.I.P. Long boat live house. Bubba Gump Shrimp Company. Ah, Just kidding. Yes. Fuck that. Yeah. I, we didn't really talk about the bar, but I did love the bar. I felt like the bar was like, it was essential for this movie. So... Shout out to the old boathouse on the Santa Monica Pier. <laughs> yes. If you're in, again, I'm, I hate to just drag this out, but if you are interested in just like really good 70s aesthetics, this film had it for me. The boathouse was fucking cool. It had all these like fishing nets and like fake starfish and um, fish tanks. I thought Long John's apartment was cool. The place where they had the party was awesome. It's just, it's one of those movies where like everything is shot on location and nothing, I don't think anything is shot on a set, right? No, it's all location. The fashions were wonderful. There's a scene from a party where there's just like all these (laughs) wonderful people. Just be sure you look at all their clothes because it's hysterical. Yeah, the, the clothes are so good. 
And I should just reiterate, even though this is a serious movie, it deals with serious themes, it's not torturous to watch. This isn't no. this isn't like possession, this isn't like antichrist. It is disturbing on a lot of levels, but there's enough levity to it where I I don't think it's going to totally destroy you and make your whole day feel weird. It's not like that. Right, because we had just watched Possession when or I had when we watched this and this this was a walk in the park. It was like a breath of fresh air when I watched this yeah. movie. So, yeah. Yeah, this is this is still serious, but compared to Possession, you feel a lot lighter when the credits roll right. on this film. Weirdly, even though it is a serious topic. Absolutely. So, well, guys, thank you so much for hanging out with us and listening to us talk about The Witch Who Came From the Sea. We will see you back here in one or two weeks, depending on how, how well we have our shit together. So until next time, <laughs> bye, everyone. Thank you.